Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Well, tonight we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. Continuing to study this quite interesting book written by Solomon who certainly had opportunity to test out all the theories that he puts forth in these chapters, much more than we ever will have, and comes to some unusual conclusions from time to time. Many times he comes to the proper conclusion, which is good for us, but we need to discern that as we go through this book. Uh, Chapters 4 and 5 really go together, so I'm hoping to get through both of them tonight. I should be able to. They're not very long. I don't want to leave you with a cliffhanger until the next time that I'm teaching. You see, in chapter 4, we see Solomon again, the searcher, the, the one who's looking for answers in life. We see him questioning, questioning again the meaning of life, questioning some of those difficult things that I think, honestly, all human beings question at one time or another. But this time, uh, some of this chapter is seen through the lens of man's inhumanity to man. And we know that that occurs. We see it in just in our day-to-day that, um, that we don't live according to the way Christ wants us to live in this world. What I love, though, is chapter 5 goes pretty far into answering those concerns and those questions that Solomon puts forth in chapter 4. And again, as we, as we see this, the, uh, the subtitle in my Bible under this first portion of chapter 4 is Evil Oppression. Evil Oppression. And don't we see that a lot in the world that we live in? And they've, they, I mean, they've seen it for thousands of years since man uh, came onto the scene. Robert Burns, I mean, we, we've heard that term, man's inhumanity to man. And uh, it's attributed to, the, to a poet of the 18th century who wrote a, a poem expressing that sad commentary about humankind. The, the poem is titled, A Man Was Made to Mourn a dirge, a sad song, and a lament. And it's, it's true in many ways. He says, Many and sharp the numerous ills inwoven with our frame, more pointed still we make ourselves, regret, remorse, and shame. And man whose heaven-erected face the smiles of love adorn, man's inhumanity to man makes countless thousands mourn. And that's really a sad thing because that's not how God intended humans to interact with one another, that we would oppress one another. We know from our observation of the world and even from our own personal experience that evil happens. We need to be able to try to put that idea, put that, that, that truth uh, into some 
compartment in our minds so that we can move on with our lives. Otherwise, we'll end up like Solomon did much of this book, and that's disappointed and hopeless. And we don't want to be that way. God does not want us to remain in that state. He wants to give us fulfillment. He wants to give us hope. So this question that's been asked since the beginning of time, why would a good God allow evil and suffering? Well, we're going to start to answer some of that tonight, and I don't really uh, have all the answers myself. The Bible does. But we're going to show a very short video of somebody I respect, Ravi Zacharias, who really many times can really eloquently put into words those things that we're wondering about. And maybe it will help you as you interact with people throughout your day. It's about a two-and-a-half-minute video. So You know, it's, uh, as I said, a, a very difficult question to answer, not just the fact of evil, but the size of it, the volume of it, you know. And people actually think that we don't think of these things as Christian apologists. The first thing I would say is to remember what I said earlier, that the question does not actually dislodge God. If anything, it should prove that God actually exists. Otherwise, value and the question disintegrates. You don't ask the question unless you believe in an absolute moral law. And you don't believe in an absolute moral law unless there's an absolute moral law giver. So the question is with God in the paradigm, not outside the paradigm. So we take that. The second thing I would say is the ultimate ethic in life is love. That is the supreme ethic. There is no ethic more supreme than love. But necessary to love is the component of the will. You cannot have love without the freedom to not love. Otherwise, you have conformity, compliance. You really don't have love. So if love is a supreme ethic and the freedom of will is indispensable to love and the question must keep God in the paradigm, then what I would say is the greatest gift of God is the gift of the freedom of our will in order that we can love. But with the greatest gift comes the greatest possible calamity. When you violate that love, the entailments actually follow. And so both good is real and evil is real. And the human heart must be able to recognize this and choose that which is good. Otherwise, you live in a world of non-concrete expressions where you can choose bad with no consequences. Nobody would believe bad is bad if there were no consequences to it. So in this supreme effort of God to bring you and me to himself, he gives us the example of love. He has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. One other footnote. If I were to take a life, something tragic has happened because I cannot restore that life. But if God allows that to happen, he can still restore that life, and the component of eternity does spell the possibility of an explanation. Without eternity, the problem of evil remains totally unsolved. In fact, the question remains indefensible. So God is able to restore life. Eternity is able to bring ultimate justice and relieve those two components in his hands. Uh, Obviously said much more eloquently than I ever could. The interesting part about Ravi Zacharias' explanation in that two, two and a half minutes is that he mentioned something very interesting, and that is that under the sun, which is what we're talking about in this book of Ecclesiastes, the point of view that Solomon has through much of the book, under the sun 
evil, evil makes no sense and cannot be explained and cannot be solved. But in eternity, which is looking outside of just this plane, this existence, uh, it all can be solved, it all can be explained. And that's, as Christians, what we need to do. We need to have a heavenly perspective on life, on issues, on problems, on sickness, on evil, on everything. It's from a heavenly perspective that we can actually gain uh, just sanity to, to live this life with the understanding that there is evil in this world and there are, are people who will try to, um, t- try to oppress others. And that's the first part of this chapter. In, in verses 1 through 3, we see this. We see Solomon questioning here. He says, Then I returned and I considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore I praised the dead who were already dead, more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Uh, Solomon here is obviously in a state of... Um, he, he hasn't been able to wrap his mind around evil and come to a place where he can, he can move forward understanding that man will be inhumane to, uh, to his fellow man. He considers the oppression that he sees around him toward the defenseless, toward the weak in society. And we wonder the same thing, don't we? It seems like the weak and helpless are always getting preyed upon. And it seems like there's no one to comfort them. But even in some of the songs that we sung tonight, we know that God wants to comfort us wants to give us comfort in times where we need it. So there is a comforter. This is one of those times where Solomon doesn't quite have it right yet. He goes on to express his mistaken idea that the dead would be better off than the suffering that some people go through. And he even goes further to reiterate something that Job said many centuries before, and that it would have been better if he had not been born for some people. Now, Job said in, in Job 3, and remember, uh, as, we, as we enter into that book of Job, we see uh, the calamity that takes place in this man's life. You know, his family, uh, his, his health, all of the things that go on uh, that, we would, that are certainly tragic, no question about it. And as Job is trying to wrap his mind around this, why would God allow this in my life? He says the same thing here that Solomon is saying in verses 1 through 3. He says, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said, A male child is conceived. Now, two mistaken um, results, two mistaken ideas by Solomon and by Job about about just trying to understand what evil means in this life. Let me stop there for a second and say that God makes no mistakes. God makes no mistakes. Since you've all been born, the people I can see here, and since you're still alive, 
both evidenced by the fact that you're listening to this message, whether sitting in front of me or hearing it at a later date, uh, it means that God has a plan still for your life. It is not better that you would never have been born. Certainly, his desire is not for the weak and defenseless to be oppressed by the more powerful in society. But because of free will, which is what um, we saw, we heard Rabbi Zacharias explain, because of the free will of man, sometimes evil happens. And those things we just can't do anything about. But it does not mean that we would be better off not having lived because we're here, God has a plan for our lives, and we want to walk in those things. The other thing that, uh, and I'm just going to hang here for a minute, and then we'll move through the rest of the chapters. The, the other thing here is that Solomon doesn't really directly, directly answer the question of why the oppression of the weak exists, or why God allows it. But God always responds to these questions in his word, which is why the word of God has everything pertaining to life and godliness. We know that we can look in the scriptures and find the answers In the final restitution to come, he'll make everything right. All of the oppression, all of the injustice, all of the things that we can't explain or understand, God will make everything right. His justice will be perfect. His justice will be complete. And Jesus speaks about that in Matthew 19, in a couple of verses. And then I'll just leave you with that as we, as we move on after this. But Jesus said to them in verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But look, look what he does. He turns everything on his head. But many who are first will be last and last first. God will make all things right. We need to always keep that in mind when we see the evil, when we see the injustice in this world. That it may not happen in this life, but it will happen in eternity. So that should give us comfort. Ecclesiastes 4, verses 4 through 6. Again, I saw that for all the toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This is also vanity and grasping for the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. So again, Solomon continues to express that even success sometimes is empty. All it does is cause others to envy you for your accomplishments. He makes an interesting observation in these verses, which ultimately does line up with God's hope for humanity, that it's better to have a little and be content than have an abundance of things and always striving to maintain those things, obtain more things. You know, we know that the material in this world is not going to make us happy. 1 Timothy 6, 6 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. 
There's where your wealth is. There's where your uh, riches lie. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Moving on to verses 7 and 8, he goes on and says, Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches, but he never asks, For whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Do you ever know someone who just is a workaholic? You know, we call them, we call them workaholics. They just work, 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 work. And uh, you realize you get to know them and they have no family. They have no uh, offspring. They have no one to leave their riches to. Yet their whole life is consumed with with working, with earning more, with building more, um, more wealth. It says here, his eye is never satisfied. Never satisfied with riches. It's never enough. And we, maybe we know people like that. Maybe we were, we, we were like that at one point. Solomon gives solid counsel in these verses. Under the sun, all of our accomplishments and wealth are meaningless and vain. Don't view your life only under the sun because it will leave you disillusioned. Also consider the poor person who had no one in his, this, this poor person, this rich person who's really poor, who had no one in his life to share his accomplishments with. That's a sad thing. That's a sad thing. And yet all he did was toil and work and strive for more and more. Remember, this life is about relationships, isn't it? We know that. We know that because we, we're here, we're the body of Christ, we're here in family, friends. When someone uh, passes, we mourn, we grieve. It's about relationships. Treasure those things more than the material things in life. That's really the, the point here. Without companionship, anything we accomplish is empty. We can accomplish great things, but if it's only about us, if we've only ourselves to share it with, what joy is there in those accomplishments? We were never meant to go through life alone. It's all about relationships. And we're going to support that in the next few verses here. In verses 9 through 12, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall One will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. few points to consider in these verses. We should be able to share the fruit of our labor with the ones we love, with those who are closest to us. It should not be something that we just take to ourselves. Isn't it better to be able to bless others and allow them to share in what you've worked so hard for? If we nurture those relationships, we won't be alone in our time of need. And isn't that important to us? Because we will all go through times where we're in need, where we're in distress, where we're in mourning. We need other people. We can't do it alone. 
If we have others in our life that we love and care about, who are like-minded, we can become partners in resisting those who would come against us. We know that sometimes, you know, there are people, because, because we're believers, they may come against you. Isn't it good to have somebody that you can depend on who will just support you in that? And although human relationships are vital, they are vital to our lives, the relationship with God is the most important one. And when we combine those together, we find strength and power beyond what you can humanly explain. Verse 12, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is the verse, this is the biblical foundation of our three strands marriage ministry. We believe that always keeping Jesus as the focus, sort of that center strand in our relationship, that um, that marriage will be better. We believe that husband and wife focused on pleasing him and glorifying him and representing him accurately to the world, uh, the marriage will be stronger, and certainly it will be glorifying to God. So that's why we use that verse, a threefold cord is not easily broken. God is that center strand in your relationship. And in a relationship with others, it's got to be God who's the focus, God who's the, uh, the center strand in, the, in those things. In all human relationships, we put God in the center and we revolve around His will in order for those relationships to be everything that God intends for them to be. Finally here, Solomon tells us that fame is fleeting and short-lived. And that as we, as we get older, we should be getting wiser. And that's something that doesn't always happen. But in verses 13 through 16, better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with a second youth who stands in his place. And there was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. It's better to learn the lessons in this life as we go along than disregard them and winding up old and foolish. But no matter how young or old we are, no matter what age, God uses life's experiences to teach us things. Don't overlook those life's experiences, good or bad. And remember, like we said at the beginning, God uses all of those things in our life for a purpose. We may not know what they are as we go along, but sometimes we look back, don't we? And we say, oh, now I understand God. Now I understand even that difficulty, that trial that you took me through. It's never too late to learn. Solomon's also saying here that neither the old king in this, in this story who disregarded all the lessons in life or the second youth who rose quickly to fame and popularity gained the respect of people. And, you know, as much as we don't want to admit it, we, we want the respect of others. And it's not necessarily a bad thing that others respect us for the right things. If we learn the lessons if we're humble enough to admit when we made mistakes or when we don't know it all, 
and that we're willing to learn from life's experiences and make those necessary changes, people will respect that, won't they? Instead of you thinking you know it all. So those are very important lessons that Solomon gives us. And then we move on to chapter 5, and we, we start to see some of the responses to those questions that were raised in the previous chapter. Basically, to the, the answer to all of life's problems and questions will always be the knowledge of God and his word. Always. That's why in these first few verses, Solomon encourages us to worship him with the reverence and honor that is due him. Because honestly, we know that it's God who's going to get us through. It's God who's got all the answers. And we need to give him the, the, the worship that is due his name. So he starts right there. He says in verses 1 through 3, Walk prudently when you go into the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. So, how do you come into the house of the Lord? Remember, you know, the, the church is a building. Uh, th- this is a building. The church is really the people. But as we gather together, we need to be in the right frame of mind. We need to expect to grow. We need to anticipate to learn something that we can apply to our lives. Our whole desire when we get together as believers is to grow in our relationship with God and to make application to our lives so that we can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Isn't it? So that every single day we grow more and more. We pray for the Holy Spirit to fill this place with His presence so that this is a place that we can meet with God. How should we approach God? Should we approach Him with careless words or, with, or should we approach Him with humility and with discretion? It's been said that the worship of God should begin before you gather together. Are you preparing your hearts to meet with the Lord? Are you preparing your heart to hear from His Word before you even step foot into this building? And Solomon is saying that that is the best way to answer the questions in life. That is, to be prepared to hear from the Lord. Now, we can do that in our own private time of prayer and reading and devotions with the Lord, and He speaks to us in those ways. But He also speaks to us in the times that we gather together. And this is where we want to we lift each other up and edify one another and learn from one another. The conversations that take place, they should be edifying. They should not be, as it says here, rash words. Um, you know, don't speak too hastily. Don't, don't speak more than you listen, sometimes, is a good way of putting it. Be prepared to learn from the, from the, uh, from the Word of God. Verses 4 through 7, Solomon goes on, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, 
for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity, but fear God. So he continues with this line of thought that God needs to be reverenced, that we need to show him the honor and the glory that is due him. That's in all the different things that we do. Solomon's telling us that our word should be our bond, especially with God. You know, we make a vow. Sometimes we make a vow to God. You know, sometimes we say, God, if you, uh, you know, if you do this, I'll promise to do this. And we make a vow. Uh, it's, I don't think it's that kind of vow. I think it's just making a commitment to the Lord to make him first in our lives. And if you make that commitment to God to make him first in your life, then what Solomon is saying here is stick to that. Make him first. Don't let anything derail you from making God first. You make a vow to God, you make him number one in your life. And even with one another, you know, we should be able to be taken at our word, shouldn't we? When, when we make a vow to someone, someone should, they should be able to count on that. Don't say we're going to do something and then just back out uh, without, without reason. People should be able to trust us that we make a promise, we're going to keep a promise. And he also mentions in verse 6 about being careful about what we say. Right? Don't let your mouth cause your flesh to sin or say before the messenger of God that it was, that it was an error. Be careful what we say. Be attentive to the words that we use because people will hold us to them. You know, James says this very clearly in chapter 5, verse 12. He says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, so in other words, he's saying here, you don't have to make a vow, you don't have to swear by anything, just let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you, lest you fall into judgment. Let people understand that you're a person of integrity and truthfulness, that you'll keep your promises, whether it's to others or certainly in our relationship with the Lord. Now again, like in uh, chapter 4, we, we, uh, Solomon goes back here and, and reflects a little bit on the injustices that he sees in society and, um, and how we should respond to those things. He says, if you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter. For high official, wa- for high official watches over high official and higher officials are over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. That's interesting. That last line, I don't have it in my notes, but that last verse, the king is served from the field, basically says that the, you know, the farmer is kind of the lowest in society, the hardest worker, uh, the one with the least prestige and position, and yet the king still needs that farmer, right? Or else, how is he going to eat? So if we look at society in that way, 
We don't ever rank people in order of importance in that way. Because here, even the king is served from the field. But moving back up here, it shouldn't shock us when the poor are mistreated or oppressed. We saw that in the beginning of chapter 4, and we understand that man is capable um, day to day of oppressing the weak and the vulnerable. And even God has ordained government officials who are supposed to care for all people. But they also have free will. And they also get selfish. And they also have other motives behind what they do. Many of them will care for only the ones who can pay them back in some way. We've seen that too. And if they're all corrupt, he speaks here about a high official watches over another high official, and higher officials are over them. But if they're all corrupt from top to bottom, then injustice will run rampant. And we see that in some, some societies, in some cultures, in some governments. You've heard the quote, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we know that that's something that people quote all the time, especially about secular government. But actually that quote was written to a bishop during the time of the Inquisition that even the religious officials were corrupt. So it doesn't, it goes across all lines of society. It could be in the secular government, it could be in the religious uh, part of, uh, of society, it doesn't matter. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Listen, God's justice will ultimately be served. We always know that. And if it isn't served here under the sun, it will eventually be served in eternity when God's standard will be applied to all, and he will judge righteously. Verses 10 through 12 He goes on, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves in abundance with increase. For this is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of the laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. God doesn't expect us to live in poverty, but he does expect us to put him first, to make him the desire and the pursuit of our lives as opposed to earthly and material riches. See, Solomon knows this. He was the richest man who ever lived. He had everything. And yet we see how he struggled to find meaning and significance in life. He says that working hard should bring satisfaction and seeking God should always be our priority in life. Good lessons. He goes on in verses 13 through 17 and says, There is a severe evil which I've seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there's nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked he shall return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this is also a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, he shall go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? 
All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Listen, material riches are not going to take away sorrow, sickness, anger. You can't take it with you, Solomon is saying here. As much as some of the uh, cultures, even at that time, would believe. And he calls the accumulation, the drive to accumulate wealth, he calls it evil. It's really a harsh description of the the drive that's in some men's hearts to accumulate more and more. But I believe he's saying exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy. In in verse 10 in chapter 6, he says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And again, sometimes that's misquoted as money is the root of all evil. No, it's the, it's the love of money. It's that pursuit of money. It's that drive to accumulate more and more because we take God out of first place in our lives. That's why. That's why. We need to keep our priorities straight. We come into this world with nothing. We're going to go out of this world with nothing. Um, And Solomon knew that. So he gives us good advice here. He closes this chapter with a final thought on the blessings of being a child of God. And he says in verse 18 through 20, Here is what I've seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the, on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. That is awesome. That's a great way to close out these chapters. See, God wants us to enjoy this life. But he also wants us to give him first place. Give him the honor that he deserves. And if you think about it, It's really an amazing deal. The creator of the universe, the creator of all things, loves you and I so much that he wants to shower blessings down upon us in this life, under the sun. And those blessings aren't only material, but it's the blessings of friendships and family and the blessings of relationships and a relationship with God. And he also wants to give us eternal life. All he asks is for us to believe in his Son for salvation and walk in obedience to his word by seeking him first. You know, when we seek him first, it says all these other things will be added to you. And the blessings that we gain through seeking God first are more than we could ever imagine. Notice how Solomon closes this chapter. The blessed man is the one who can experience the joy of each and every day. The excitement of what God is going to do in your life and my life 
each and every day. Not to dwell on the past or even anticipate the future. And that's something that's not so easy to do. Sometimes we have things in our past that we dwell on that, or, or dreams of things uh, in the future that we, that we just dwell on. And instead of living in today and enjoying what God has given us, it's rare if we can find a person who lives in the present and enjoys the blessings that God is giving him now. But I really think that Solomon here is telling us that that's the, that's the, the formula for true contentment. And I know that that's what God wants for each and every one of us. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.